This is a show about individual experience and personal identity. There may be times when folks use identifying words or phrases that don't feel right to you. That's part of what we're exploring here. Please listen with an open heart. And as always, I welcome your polite, engaged feedback. And I encourage you to continue the conversation in your own life and with your own community. Welcome to Query. Hey, Queeros, Cami here. This week's episode is a conversation with Chris Nee, who created a monster kids television show that is called Doc McStuffins. Chris and I have been like interacting via the internet for, uh, I don't know, maybe even a couple years at this point, but I was like so glad that we finally had a chance to sit down. This is a great conversation. And also it's so cool to, to just the impact that, that Chris is making in children's television. So I really support this person and I think they're crushing it. Also, you know who else is crushing it? Me, because <laughs> I've got just a few copies left of Rape Jokes on vinyl. You could get it through Special Thing Records. Uh, just search Rape Jokes on vinyl. And um, we've raised like $95,000 for rain so far. What a great thing you all did, donating. And if you haven't done it yet, you still can. Enjoy the show. I've been feeling wrong, but I'm still So on this show, I always have folks introduce themselves. Would you introduce yourself? My name is Chris Nee, and um, I am a mother and a writer, and I am the babysitter for kind of like half the world's children, <laughs> which is a little terrifying. Oh, yes. Tell, uh, first of all, what a great way of introing what you do for a living. But yeah, maybe a little more maybe our listeners yeah. no i felt like it was great yeah uh but why do you say that <laughs> so i created um a television show called doc mcstuffins and it is on disney junior and i also am the executive producer and and brought to tv a show called vampirina um but doc has been one of those lightning in a bottle shows and um ultimately i i create shows that are seen by a hundred million people viewers, unique viewers around the world every quarter. It's absurd the reach that I have in this world. I mean, and the, and the, the global The global reach is bizarre. I don't actually know prior to Doc McStuffins what you were working on or if you had that experience of things being translated or, like, distributed that widely? I mean, to a certain extent, I did. I started at Sesame Street, like, 20 I've years ago. I've heard of it. Ago. Yeah, so the little show called Sesame Street. Uh, like, 20 years ago, I started as an intern and got um, promoted very quickly and worked in the international department. So I would travel around the world and produce episodes of Sesame Street in other places. Famously, I ended up in the Middle East um, when I was 27 years old, 1996, uh, with a shaved head. Um, at the time, I really, like, I had bad-fitting T-shirts and jeans, and uh, and I took over the Israeli-Palestinian Sesame Street. So they sent me to Jordan, and it was a very last-minute thing, and I remember calling a meeting, and it was a big deal. Like, I was, like, barely out of being an intern. And sitting down with my big bosses and being like, hey, I'm so excited for this opportunity. Um, 
listen, I'm wondering if we can just talk about if this is safe. Does this seem safe? And they were like, we don't. It was so PC. It was like 96. You couldn't talk. They were they were supportive. We were in New York, but nobody wanted to talk about my, that I was really butch and I had a shaved head and whether it was really okay for me to go like show up in the Middle East. Um, and they just kept getting like, we don't know what you're talking about. And I was like, that's not helpful. <laughs> and I got on a plane and I landed in Jordan and lived uh, in a hotel in Jordan for about six weeks until I was actually mistaken for a spy. Um, someone jumped on my elevator in the middle of the night. They shut it off and said, who are you working for? And I <laughs> said, Big Bird. And um, they did not have Sesame Street there. So it did meant like it sounded like a B-movie uh, code name. Um, <laughs> and eventually, I mean, he is the biggest bird. Yeah, yeah, I was, yeah exactly. Like there, so, I uh, ended up in Israel and worked in Ramallah, and um, that's where I started in sort of kids' TV and started writing from there. And I also think I think what you're talking about is correct me if I'm wrong, but that there are like independently produced set other streets of Sesame, other Sesame streets. Yeah, actually nowhere else around the world do they see our street, right. which is incredible. And that's just pure uh, Sesame Street kind of money and commitment to that kind of thing. Like everybody else dubs things for the most part. Um, but Sesame, each country has their own. And that was the crazy thing. The Israelis and Palestinians were like, there cannot be one street. So they had two, they were the only place where there are two streets and a park in between because they were like, even in a Muppet world, we would not be on the same street, like which is crazy stuff to sort of take in in the world while you're 26, 27 years old. It was crazy. Hi, just we've been talking for um, less than five minutes and you've already said some of the most interesting stuff I've ever heard in my entire life. Yeah, it's I mean, it's been a crazy ride. Um, I didn't necessarily intend to go into kids TV, but I turned out to have um Whatever that soft center is where I remember, I remember being a kid. Like, I'm not writing for kids. I'm writing for myself. I'm trying to work my own shit out. Um, and I have that ability, which the great kids writers do, to kind of touch that place where I can write things in a contemporary way, but I'm really working out my own stuff. And it feels, I think it feels real to people. So right before Sesame Street, if if that was a... What were, what were you doing that prepared you for that moment? That or you question. <laughs> or you thought so I was um I, I was an acting student at uh I went to BU to the acting conservatory sure. and went there at, in well no first I was in the liberal arts college in 1987. Uh I came out in 1988 um and I failed out of school in one semester which is I'm very proud of. Congratulations. Uh, yeah, my son is really holding it's a fast on to that. Burning one. Candle. Yeah, no, <laughs> like by the time everyone's home for Christmas break and they were all like and then and then and I was like no I'm gone. I'm already I have packed my bags and and left. Um and then I went back into the acting conservatory there. I was there for two and a half years, so they have the big cut system there, yeah. uh, and I had to get through that. I had to know that they had not rejected me before I realized that I was a writer and not a performer. Plus, there was no world for me to be a performer back then, right? There was no, there was no place where I was going to find... I mean, now, could I see a world where that would be possible? Yes, but not then. And they were very clear about that. I mean, I had, I had professors who would tell me, like, you're too butch, and I was like, there's not fucking much I can do about that. Were they that. using that word? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we had these um, kind of amazing... It's funny. I was in I was in college with... Uh, in the same two classes with uh, uh, Peter Page and um, Krista Vernoff and Abraham Higginbotham. So we're all out here kind of doing our own stuff in this world. Um, but we had these two... Um, 
uh, not pre-married, obviously, domestic partnership gay guys who who were both in our small program and they were activists in their way, but it was in a very old school way, right? Yes. Oh, yeah. Also, you went to BC. I did. So I'm I like thinking liaise. about all of the different things that you're saying. I have like so many follow up questions. I went Can to BC. Can we talk about? Well, yeah. So my family is a BC family. Oh, it was really? A big deal that I went to BU. That is a big deal. Those are no a huge thing. Like, in fact, very different. Yes. So, so my you're uncle, talking yeah. about Boston University, and yes. I went to Boston College. For anybody that exactly. doesn't know, what we're talking about, and they are schools that are like, I don't know. I mean, like a like a 10 minute drive or whatever yeah. five whatever like the very I lived very above close. played against Sam's for a while do you remember that on the on your on Com Ave on the way up it was a big bar on the left side I don't know but I also lived BC. I also lived at the BU what stop did I live right after college well first of all I lived off of Harvard Ave which is sure. like closer to BU than BC and then sure. I also lived right after school like actually um in a building that was like technically mixed into BU on our non-campus, yeah. yeah, the most non-campus yeah. campus. Yeah, no, I mean, like my my uncle was a priest. I'm coming. I come from like my family's Rosendale. My grandparents. Oh wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My, yeah. yeah. My fam- and I'm like I have family second, that lives in Rosendale. Oh, yeah. now. Rosendale, Needham. Yeah. yeah, me too. Um, so I'm like second generation uh, American, and we're Irish. And so everyone went to BC except for my father, who was like the rebel, and he went to Notre Dame <laughs> instead. Yeah, he just went to mass in a different place <laughs> instead of at BC. And when I went to BU, like, I remember going to Thanksgiving and my uncle uh, uh, saying to me, like, Christine, we've uh, we've worked out a very special program. You are going to be able to take uh, your religion classes uh, at BC. Uh, this took a lot of wrangling. And I was like, oh, what the fuck my are you talking God. about? I'm not taking religion. I'm not. No, I did not ask for this. I do not want this. You know, uh, this is the same uncle who brought me the courage to be chased at my brother's wedding. And I was like, is it is it helpful if I tell him I'm a virgin? And is that? No, maybe not. Maybe not. The you to know be that, chased. yeah. But That's when I came so out, there specific. were no gay bars under because you really couldn't get in under twenty one. So um, it's a very. I don't know if this is going to ring for you because you're y- significantly younger than I am. But uh, Club Cafe, which yeah, was, yeah, which was the only place to go. So when you were coming out, because it had a restaurant attached to it, you could get in at under twenty one. And Boston is hardcore about the twenty one law, and so you would be coming out in what you would be was in this sort of kind of sad piano bar. Right, with, with like brunch happening. Yes. And it, people it, it, that are like much older than you. So yeah, yeah. I I also went to Club Cafe at like a really formative time in my life. Yes. When I, this place I'm talking about that was like in the BU campus, yeah. um, I had a boss and um, I was like in this program. It was almost like sort of like a Teach for America program and mm. we we're not supposed to date within the program, but there were literally like two lesbians and a bunch of other right. uh, straight folks. So, so you like, either date or don't talk. Yeah, exactly. So like There's we binary. we started seeing each other and um, we had to go. We we were called in for a meeting with our boss, and I was literally like, ah, like I'm gonna lose my job. Right. Um, but instead, our boss came out to us <laughs> and was like, hey, like uh, I I kind of understand that what's happening. He- she didn't really say it this this way, but I, looking back on it, I think this is really what happened. I think she realized that this was like an extremely special situation. Our housing was kind of tied to our employment. So if we had gotten fired, like we wouldn't have had anywhere to live. I also think that she saw that it— She was happy for the baby gays. Yeah, Come like on. that it didn't really make sense to right. make the two queer people right. not uh, see each other. So, and then specifically of me and my then-girlfriend— she like took me under her her wing. Hmm. I don't know. We just had a lot in common, and uh, I was like doing improv at night. She would come see my shows, which meant a lot to me. And uh, she also she had like a 
a community of friends who felt like so much older. Were they 31? Like I literally like, can't, oh, yeah, I can't t- even oh, totally. like place what age they would yeah. have been. Um, a thousand. Yes. And, exactly. um, but like some of them were like exes or some of them were like men, you know, and I was literally like, how did you even meet each other? Right. You know? But you are, you were experiencing that beginning of like the maid family. That yes. is like, that is sort of the queer experience, especially back then when we yeah. were so isolated. I mean, you know, there is so much that has changed in the 30 years since I came out. I mean, it's been, you know, a Copernican revolution in what it has meant to be, right. to, to, to be queer in this world. It's not something I could have ever expected. I mean, I came out before, like, Ellen wasn't out. Ellen John was not out when I, there was no one. There was right. not. Right, Liberace. <laughs> yeah, not out. Not, not out. None of these things, like, these these were not, the, yeah. none of that existed yet uh, in, in 88. And I was in, I was, I was happy you and then eventually transferred to NYU. So I moved back to Manhattan at like 21 and stay there until 30. And, you know, this is the integration of our lives is everything everyone wanted. And yet there was a moment after the, after this last election, um, you know, when Trump won, where I thought, God, maybe those people who were the ones who kept saying we are losing what's special about ourselves as we become more and more homogenized into sort of the straight way of life were right. Like there is some there was magic and power in in the way in which we were so isolated. And and I think it it created this world where like you don't lose your exes. You don't lose you. Anyone who who accepts you, um, even with all their rough edges, uh, uh, is family. And you keep them because you have to. Yeah. I mean, I think we have seen a, a resurgence of that. So, yes. I mean, since the election. Yeah. Really, for, I think, I mean, it's, I've had that same feeling and yep. I just see it kind of everywhere. Even like. Because you can't pretend anymore. Yeah. And even like queer youth who I think maybe, I don't know, like maybe it's coming from a slightly different place because because they, they it's just not an equivalent landscape to what you're talking about right There's, but like elton john is actually out yeah. um but um <laughs> thank god yeah but uh yeah i still think that that it's uh well i think there's no there is no denying what a powerful thing it is to realize that people that there's actual true hate for you in this world and i think we we all want to be accepted so badly that during these years that have been really in- incredibly fast transformation in in some amounts of acceptance in our brain i think we want to go all the way there i mean right after the election i i remember saying to people do you know how often people scream dyke at me and they were like really now still and i'm like yes and i excuse it i would actually tell you that my life is at this point so unaffected by who i present to be in the world and yet it actually happens all the time and, I, and in my head like what lie am i telling myself it was always like it, at this point we're such an angry culture we're only looking for whatever is going to bug someone else and that people really it's road rage that's what it was but the thing they saw that they could call out on me was dyke but it happened all the time. And afterwards, it suddenly felt like a completely different thing because I felt the the power and the meaning and the truth. And you kind of have to take those blinders off and go, we're, we're not there yet. There's a lot yeah. of hate towards who I am as I walk down the street. That's that's absolutely true. I also, it's, well, here's an experience I had literally last night. I was at uh, the stand-up show that I host um, on Tuesday nights at the UCB Theater. And uh, this comic who, like, I've known for a very long time, uh, who's a straight man and like a very like comics comic, like really like beloved um, 
got up on stage and he's like a straight dude. I literally have known him for like 10 or 15, like just forever. And um, he just said this thing in passing about like, it wasn't even, a, it was uh, like a random qualifier. I wish I could remember the wording he used. Like, and I mean, this is like the most progressive show in town. And he said it with like, um, like it was a negative thing. Like a disdain, yeah. Yeah, it was like, it was like a, like a, like a slam or like a, it was so weird to me because I, I was like, you know, the difference between this show and like maybe every other show is that like there are two queer hosts. And if you are a straight person, you say the word, the F word, we don't rebook you Yeah, for several years or maybe ever. Yeah. Because, um, that I don't want to hear that. Like, it's just like annoying. Yeah. The audience yeah. hates it. It's yeah. not, it's stupid. It's like bad comedy. And, um, I was, I was just thinking to myself, like, man, I, I, you know, I wonder, like, and that makes that, and just the way they said it was like, it was like he was in an, in an alternate reality and this very extreme version of comedy. It's literally like, do you think I could talk about my life as a straight man? Right. But I just choose to talk about this life where I don't love to hear the F word. Like, is that, like, is that, you think that I'm like creating, like, this is like this really, extreme like oppressive yes like this space is just like <laughs> teeming with like energy and i literally i mean yeah. it's like we're in a yeah. place of overcorrection on everything like mm. this is you know I, I individually i feel for all of the wonderful straight white writers who i know who are super talented and right now i i do think they're in a place where like people want to hire someone else instead and so individually i can feel bad for any one of those 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 guys but we we have to overcorrect we are in a space but we do, but that means going too far like i think there is a place where to pull history towards you you have to get into a somewhat kind of militant stance. Otherwise, <laughs> sure. nothing changes, right? Sure. Um, and that really does mean like, yeah, I got three candidates for something and and you're really, really good, but I'm really actually am not considering you because I want to change the world. And that means I have to bring other voices into, you know, the ability to to have a voice on TV. Right. But it does like individually that you're in a shitty position. Yeah. Overall, Guess what? So have we been forever and ever and ever, and this is just where we are. I'm fascinated right now with like, I don't know. I'm so confused by, I keep thinking about the Thanksgiving table, which for me was the Thanksgiving table in Needham. Um, back when you would sit around the table and and your racist, um, uh, homophobic uncle who was also fucking hilarious and delightful and Irish to his core would tell like a couple of, of jokes that were offensive. And, and yet you sat at the table and you took it in and you either laughed or didn't laugh and you went and cried in your closet, so to speak, sure. after the fact. But you continued to have that relationship. And where we are now, we're not having the Thanksgiving table conversations at all anymore. And I think maybe that needs to happen but I also don't know how we get back to having a real conversation across across people being in their tribes completely and not allowing uh, uh, people to to change or figure out how to move from one stance to another. Well, I mean, that's interesting. I think, you know, another thing that's, well, what you just said about the writers, I just want to stop on that for yeah. a minute because there is something to, to say, like, just right on there, which is that it's also the, <laughs> that affects such a wide swath of people so like totally. if you're like a a dude who's like just making it and you have uh you know you're the primary 
breadwinner in your family. It, like this can be a huge deal if, for instance, like the a different person is being hired for your job. Right. Um, but that's not really the scale where that that could be like someone who is an immigrant will accept less because like that's very different than what you're talking about with with writer stuff yeah. or or like I think that it's almost like we're having like multiple conversations conversations as if they're the same thing yeah and the thing that you're talking about which is also true in like politics or the boardroom right um that person like being a writer is is a very lucrative job especially compared to like the national average of what people make right so um you've been doing it for 10 years or 15 years and like you've been successful, you've been staffed on a bunch of shows or whatever. Like you probably have a house with like a huge mortgage or whatever, but you also probably have a lot of savings. And I think that something that we don't, that we're like not yet talking about is like, uh, like this sucks. I'm so sorry to tell you this individual person, but like you might take a small loss in the middle because there actually, there is like income redistribution going on. Yes. And that that's a very different thing than like what, um, you know, the Republican Party is like out stumping for on the road, which is like you're being replaced by. And I think we have to talk kind of um, very differently about these different things. But it's also income redistribution, but also image redistribution. Yeah. Like we just are seeing we we are not seeing the uh the great scape scope of our country totally. on 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 the screen and the only way to do that is to and, and and I think there's always um there is a piece of this that always gets lost when you talk about showrunners who are the ones who really get to have their vision on the screen that that ultimately a showrunner is getting handed somewhere between between 10 and 40 million dollar production to run and that actually often it's not the storytelling that's the piece that makes that makes the decision makers want to pick the straight white guy it's the sense that they can deliver and 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 actually manage the money side of it and i actually think that a lot of um underserved populations uh, include you know women, w- w- people of color, queer, trans. All of those people actually don't have it in their head that they can run that room. There's, it's almost like we think there's something behind the door that's magic. One of the things I do when I bring people in um, and they're working for me is I'm always training them to to be the next showrunners. That is my absolute goal. I'm bringing people in for that reason, and I've promoted up a ton of people. And one of the biggest things I do is I say I'm going to open all the doors, sit in on every single meeting, and find out how many people are fucking full of shit behind those doors. It's not magic. And 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 be you know, be aware of what these conversations are before the time someone puts the microphone in your face and you actually know, have an answer because they're all bullshitting. We're all bullshitting it. But people who have grown up thinking and being given the key that says like, of course you can do it, they bullshit really well. Yeah. Well, we have a lot in common. I like everything <laughs> that you just said. <laughs> Back for another game. You know it. What's going on? Just one more week till Max Fun Drive. <laughs> Hard to believe. It's been a heck of a year since the last one. We're now a worker-owned co-op. We raised $50,000 for charity last year. And we've added a bunch of awesome new shows. But do you think we're ready to do it again? Absolutely. Lovely new gifts are lined up. The episodes will be amazing, and wait till everyone hears the bonus content. Yeah, plus they know to go to MaximumFun.org slash newsletter, so they're getting all the news. Oh, like that meetup day is on Thursday, March 21st. Then what's bothering you? Me? Oh, nothing. We're all set for Max Fun Drive to start on Monday, March 18th. 
I just didn't want you to see this coming. Check. What? Hang on. Hey, I want to, I just want to go back to this before I forget. Yep. Here's a question. You said Sesame Street and you time stamped it and it was when? When did you start working there? Like vaguely? 96, I want to say. So here's like another, I mean, I'm not assuming that this, I, I don't have any idea that this happened there, but it is something I'm thinking about in, we don't really talk about anymore how how much focus used, used to be placed on um, protecting kids from gay people. Mm-hmm. I feel oh, like the huge. second that marriage equality yeah. like happened nationally, yeah. that was dropped as a talking point so quickly that even just like, and you know, it, it's like we've had so much news since then. Right. Conversation has shifted right. to like bathrooms. And right. I just think we like well, forgot the ba- that that, yeah. you know, even was like such a, it was like so shoved down our throats. Like literally like, it. do not well, talk to Well, that was the kids. Anita Bryant thing. Like yeah. the, the thing that went up the West Coast and up to Seattle was, it was all about teachers and they were yes. the focal point was not letting. Um, yeah. I mean, I have a lot to say about this. Like, it, it those of us who were in the business of working, you know, for, in kids television in around 96, 97 are extraordinarily scarred by um, there was a show called Postcards uh, for Buster. And they did an episode that wasn't about gay parents, but the character had, um, you know, they, there was a live action component to that show and it was a PBS show. And the family that they were visiting on this one episode was clearly had two moms. It was not overtly said. That's not what the episode was about. But the backlash was huge. I mean, you know, uh, a channel's canceling that show. Um, there are a lot of gays in this end of the business and people who want to do the right thing. And it has been the third rail. And we, anyone who's been around long enough, really had that in their head. And what's interesting about moving to where I am now with a great position of power is... First of all, there were interesting places where I realized I was behind. <laughs> um, we were first doing press on Doc. I I just assumed they weren't they would want to uh, queer wash my background, and and actually the Disney PR team didn't want to at all. They were kind of leaning into it, and I was like, oh, I got why was I so ready to sell that? <laughs> you know, I was like, I'm not going to lie, but um, but they that that was not an issue. But the process of putting um, you know, any kind of queer content for younger kids has been an absolute third rail. And it's for exactly that reason. There is still some idea. And there's also some idea that you can't have a representation of either queer queer parents or anything along the spectrum that doesn't deal with sex. Like, that's the crazy equation, right? Right. It's that also it's, that, yeah, and that idea that, like, we're pitching for... um yeah, that you're trying to actually change something versus <laughs> right. like let all of the kids who already exist in this world see themselves. I mean, what was so hard for me, Doc, one of the reasons that Doc McStuffins has done so well is that the lead character is African-American. And I, I very much could not tell the story of my own family. And therefore, I understood what it was to be another and to not see myself on screen. I still don't see myself specifically very often on screen. Um, and so I really, it mattered to me to get to, to, to show that visibility for someone else, but I still couldn't do it for myself. And in fact, you know, it took four seasons in for us to be able to do one episode that had a same sex parents, uh, on doc. And it was a huge deal. Like, that's the fun, you know, the part that I was at some point, like, come on, Disney, gotta hurry up. Like, it's not gonna be a big deal. And of course it was like, they were right. Like they were right that it was going to be a massive like thing. Who when did we the did voices that for that? It's Wanda so Sykes, right? It's and then Wanda it's and else? Portia de Rossi. And I did that very specifically. Yay! 
So I I did not. Wanda ended up being a regular on my on my next show because of working with her on on that. Um, I wrote a character for her, and everyone kept being like, "We don't quite." And I was like, "Just stick with me. This character, I get this, but Wanda has to do it, and she did, and she's an amazing person." Um, but in casting the episode for Doc, I wanted someone who Disney couldn't get cold feet. And I don't even blame them for that. But like I wanted to make sure that whoever was playing those roles had enough visibility that they couldn't at the last second. And to be honest, it didn't air until after Trump was elected. And I think that if they could have buried it, they would have. Oh, my God. I just... I didn't think of that, and that's brilliant. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Those are huge. I, those are huge gets. Yes, they so were they huge. wouldn't like. I just they, for they couldn't folks just that might, bury it. Yeah, because yes. they because they would have a problem with yes. it, and also because they'd be squandering that's the right. eyeballs of and like I, how exciting it is to get yes. those folks. And I want to be clear, like they never said that they, but they were clearly Disney was nervous leading up. They never said that they were going to do that, but like that was my thinking going into it. I just wanted to make sure, and it is so interesting that like. That episode is about being prepared in an emergency. That's what the episode's about. It just happens to have two moms. It has these two kids. There's a there's an earthquake in their little world, and they get separated. And it's about having an emergency plan. That's what it's called, an emergency plan. Um, and and it has nothing to do with them. You know, it's just that subtle thing. I remember having someone in a in a kids TV conference say, "So if we were gonna have." Uh, a mother who was gay, like, how would we, what would you, how would you say that? How would you, like, how would you, I don't, I mean, right. how would you do that without talking about sex? And I was like, you, we call them mom? Yes. And, and mom. Like, mom, like, that's all it is. You don't have to say, and then they sleep together. And like, they cut no, to the bedroom. Yeah, yeah. it's like, that's, that's not, yeah. it's just not there. And it isn't necessary. It's just sure. having a kid who, like, in the first few seconds of that episode, you know, uh, there's a huge dragon character who says, you know, uh, if you want to go with me, you got to ask your moms. That's it. There you go. History made. Moms. Yeah, that's, I mean, it's, it's so rad. Also, the show is, I mean, I, I'm familiar with it and, like, think it's awesome, love it. But maybe for folks that don't know that might be listening because maybe they're not, like, as up on children's TV. First of all, I would say it is like a monster hit. I, it's know, you, a monster I know you sort of hit. said that earlier, yeah, but like it is no. like a monster yeah, hit. Yeah, if I say it, it doesn't mean the same as if you say it, but yeah, no, monster, monster hit, which is, look, nobody thinks that I'm the person behind that show. And what's so funny for me is like I was such an East Village, like again, head shaved, like doing downtown theater person. The idea that I would end up doing some of the most mass media stuff for kids <laughs> is really fucking funny. And I am not, I am like the bad girl of preschool TV and I don't I don't really fit into what anyone expects for someone to be doing and writing I'm a I'm a you know I'm an intense energy I uh you know on my wall at work is if the phrase is small and petty because I'm a fighter and I fight for shit and yet my shows are just these like unbelievable love letters to communities and that's really what they are underneath everything the the show is about a little girl who's a a doctor to her stuffed animals and toys. Um, but for me, like the thing I'm always writing about is just, it's, it's, it's disparate communities. So I, you know, in animation terms, like people hate me because I have these huge casts, but it's all about creating these, these worlds where people take care of each other. 
And she also actually does the job. Like, because it's like in her imagination. Well, she like really is a doctor. Yes, the, so, so totally. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. She and is. I, yes. And I think that's also. Now a, she runs a hospital. Right. They actually like I, promoted her. <laughs> like, I think that's a cool part of it, too, because, you know, I think about how kids play and also a way to. It, it is true to how kids play, but then it also is a way of, you know, doing mirroring or or aspirational programming for like a, yeah. for young for young women or anyone who's cultured female or anybody who's person of color because she like legitimately is a doctor. She's not like yeah, a no, and, goofball who and, doesn't really help. She's like yeah, you we, know, really we're a, actually going to see person. a generation of like of kids who are going to. I mean, they're already on their way there. Who are going to graduate from medical school and talk about doc being the reason why? Um, Forbes did a study for girls. I think it was like six to eleven. Uh, maybe a year or two years ago, um, and suddenly the number one thing that girls want to be when they grow up is a doctor. And that's like, you know, everyone sort of equates that to this show, which shows you um, just how powerful our voices are. And anyone right now in this world who isn't taking their their great privilege to have access to television and isn't putting something out there that they can stand behind and that isn't actually actively moving the needle, like I'm... I, I'm really have been working on this idea of like, we, we, we all know we have to work on our unconscious bias, but that's not enough anymore. Like I'm, I'm, I'm a big advocate right now in conscious advocacy that you have to actually dig deeper and, and not just erase the negative that's in your brain, but go find things that you can do that move the needle towards the positive. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I also, and, oh, you know, that makes me, I mean, the last time that I remember hearing about something that moved things that it's like legally blonde is yeah. the is the one that like massively affected the number of women that were applying to law school. Oh, like to my law sister, school. Yes. my sister's literally in that group of people yeah. that went to law school. Yeah. Like post, yeah. and I'm not. I don't know that she would, but it's like, but it did happen right. and, and uh, really affected the well, specifically think, like Harvard, but also <laughs> like everywhere. Yeah. There was a huge uptick in women going to law school. After we that. just forget. We forget. I mean, there was this. There's a. There's a sort. of well-known story and I heard it firsthand of like this kid who six months after the show went on the air was watching the show with his mother who was a doctor um, and it was a little boy and he turned to his mom and said like mom can boys be doctors too yes and and you're like that was six months after that show went on the air so like go put something good out in the world you can actually make a difference like right. it's it's so easy to to feel right now like we can't change things it is it's also I think when I think about like like just those two properties and something that I'm not comparing, comparing your show to Lincoln Plot, but, but I just think about something that was so specific about that, yeah. that movie was that, um, she wasn't, she was like herself and it worked for her in the field yeah. that she chose yeah. and that not just a, not just for her being a lawyer, but like for any woman doing any sort of job that we would have to, that we would be able to have whatever likes and personality we have and then go into it much like, a person being a doctor and being like compassionate and asking questions right. and being engaged, which is very different than like maybe messaging that kids would get from like if they're watching some primetime doctor show with right. their folks and it's like all about love triangles or whatever, you know, like <laughs> just thinking about the way that it's also gonna be some kids who are going to be like, now I want to be a doctor. Yeah. And I mean, that's cool Didn't too. Be a doctor before. <laughs> but even just like, <laughs> but those elevator rides, <laughs> holy crap. Right. Elevator rides. Yeah, yeah. What's up, Krista? But anyway, just, uh, <laughs> But just the idea of like showing personality types or like a range yeah. of skills that might be employed. Yeah. Um, like she's like, you know, uh, 
She's a competent, I mean, she is just, I, I created the show for my son. It did not occur to me that it was weird that I made her um, a little girl and a little black girl because like he can watch that. I didn't need to see another kid boy who is like the leader of the pack. But the fact that she's like a future, like successful person uh, in whatever she does, I mean, you know, is is kind of revolutionary, which is crazy. It shouldn't be. To have that kind of depiction of a girl. Oh, yeah. I mean, even also, if I just think about, I'm not like super familiar with what's going on now, but when I was starting to launch my stand-up career, I was a nanny for a long time. Like I worked in special ed and then I transitioned Mm -hmm. to being a nanny. So at that point I was watching like all kids TV. And another thing that was true is that a lot of it was, like it was kids um, that were like maybe smart but it was a lot of still that thing of like they're doing something sort of away from their parents or like right. uh, getting away with something. Like I'm thinking of like more like a Phineas and Ferb, which is just like hijinks and a platypus. It's like not right. um, so just something that that for kids, which is more on the Sesame Street side of things. That's like uh, they're has, engaged yeah. in the universe yeah. around them as opposed to like off on their own. Yep. By the way, Phineas and Ferb, great show. I'm great just show. saying, yeah, like, totally great like show. the idea of um, also, like, modeling trust or, like, you know. Modeling taking care of each other, that mm-hmm, it's cool yeah. to be loving. Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and That's again, what I'm trying like, to say. Yeah, yeah. and it's, re- it's funny because, like, to know me in person, I am not the person who's walking around saying, and I love you all <laughs> the time. But, like, my characters actually say that in a very real way. And and I think that in in kids TV, like you tend to have shows that either they sort of like in a treacly way kind of say that or it doesn't feel earned or real or you don't say it. And like I I'm clearly writing the world that I wish I'd grown up in. Like there's no question what I'm doing. And also what a great privilege. I, I got a chance to write for Winnie the Pooh, which like, you know, Disney owns. So they gave me Winnie to put on to Doc and I did a crossover episode and we had Jim, Jim Cummings. So like the voice, you know, is Winnie the poo and writing the episode was like totally mind-blowing to me but I felt like I'd gotten over it and then I went into the recording booth and and Jim did the first line as Winnie the Pooh in the voice that you know from your childhood that I wrote and I went to hit the talkback button and all of a sudden I couldn't speak and I was like I'm so I'm so sorry I'm crying right now and he like there was this beautiful pause and he came on and he said you have no idea how often that happens and I remember thinking like that is what it is to touch the warm gooey like the still forming part of ourselves that gets hurt so fucking young and and creates who we are and what the boundaries we have are in the world and like I'm getting to do that for a whole other generation of people and I'm doing it from my perspective whether parents know that or not Ooh, yes. Also, <laughs> you said earlier that you are able to sneak in and access that that gooey stuff for yourself. Why why do you think that is? Why do you have access to that? I don't know what that is, but the great kids writers are not writing to a lesson plan and they're not writing to um uh tip for kids today, which is always like, you know, who are you writing for? I'm writing for my son and it's like Sure, I love my son. I know the right answer is I'm writing for him. But I'm I'm not. Like I had a I had a childhood that had a lot of pain. I was very much a felt unbelievably on the outside of of sort of every <laughs> structure I was supposed to be in and 
Um, and for whatever reason, I feel that in a real way and, and am able to write that. And so I'm writing speeches for myself that have a lot of sort of sophistication underneath them. Sure. Um, and from a literal healer. Yeah. You created a yeah. literal a healer. A literal healer. <laughs> yeah, there are a lot of like subtle things. Yeah. Like, so so my name is Chris Nee and I'm actually incredibly Irish and not a man. Like I always say, like my name inspires lots of Asian men to go into animation. They, we don't need that. Um, but, you know, my family has always had a chip on our shoulders because we're Irish as fuck and we don't have a Mick in front of our name. The joke was always that we were too poor to afford it. And then I created a show called Doc McStuffins and it took me a year to be like, oh, I see what I did there. Yeah, I totally gave myself the Mick my family has wanted our whole life. But it really, I was like a little embarrassed when it finally occurred to me that I had done that. No, I mean, all artists are. That's what I'm yeah, doing. Yeah, you're working out your own you're, stuff. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The best stuff is, yeah, is you're when you're working out your own stuff. Creating the thing that you needed to have. Yeah, That makes exactly. all the sense in the world yeah. to me. When you were a kid, did you have siblings? I have a brother. Yeah. Were you guys close in in childhood? No, we really weren't. We lived, you know, I had a very, uh, my parents were not happy. My dad left. He's still alive, but I haven't seen him in 15 years. You know, he moved to another part of our town, but like it was the kind of like relationship where I, I, I remember walking down the street with friends and passing him and us not saying anything to each other. This was when I was in high school. And, uh, and you know, my friends being like, isn't that your dad <laughs> like, yeah so it's, it's like deep what age was that happening stuff. for that, you uh my my parents split when i was in like the seventh grade i want to say that that happened probably in high school and uh, that's a catholic family yeah and that's a catholic yeah. family at a time i mean i was talking to one of my closest friends in the actually like so I have this friend in my life that we've been friends since we were 10 and we went to grade school, high school and college yeah. together. Yeah. And that there's literally I no, have one of this. There's literally no do you? Yes, there's nine years old. No one else that like has even been to all those yeah. three schools. This yeah. is the one person. Yeah. So when I hang out with this friend, like she and I, it's like literally any person she names. Yes, I'm like I'm you know. Oh, I know who you're talking about. Yeah. Um and I let that person nickname me Snee. Didn't yeah. realize that she's going to infect that to every single part of my life. <laughs> that is very real. I was going to bring it up earlier. It's a, it's a very, uh, it's a, it's, it's a name that really scoots along into one. Yeah, no, into one. No, for a while it was going to be the share of kids TV or of whatever else yeah. I was doing. Like I, there are, there are huge swaths of people in my life who did not know until Doc came out. Did not know what my real name was. Did not know at all. <laughs> well, this person that I grew up with, she, um, like we went to Catholic grade school together. Her folks uh, split up similar time to what you're talking about. And um, it was like, you know, harrowing for her. And I remember, I remember it at the time, but then we talk about it now too. It's like, it was, um, we were learning that it was a sin, actively learning at school that it was a sin, <laughs> yeah. but there was also like an outreach program right. for kids whose parents had divorced Right. that she was also required to go to. And I think it was like during study, it was study hall or something like a free period. So literally like in religion, you don't class, get to do recess. Yeah. Yeah. You, you literally to. are like, um, yeah. you're damned. And also like, yeah. you do not get to play, yeah. you know, like, and, yeah. and, um, and it had like a, like a name. I don't even want to say, I will say what it is. Hopefully it's, it was called rainbows. Like, Oh God, you know, <laughs> and, and everybody knew what it was. Yeah, and yeah, you were yeah. so like scarlet lettered, you know, yeah. where it was like, Oh, and then like, she has to go to rainbows and like, everybody's just like, like, Ooh, yeah. Yeah. you know, like very. And I don't know that there were even like, there was maybe like one or one other person in our class. And, right. um, and it was so not, and the focus was also not on 
having any sort of healing, healing, positive interaction between the parents. It was like, everything's fucked forever. They're probably never going to talk. Like it was like so bad. Right. The church did nothing to To provide them like counsel relief where they could um, like we're hurt where for her, it could be something where she could see that both of those people in the same room or even for the parents, you know, that they could ever interact with each other in a way that might be healthy. Um, yeah, I mean, that stuff was definitely there on the periphery, but I didn't go to Catholic school. So that and 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 my mother had sort of pulled us away from Catholicism. I'm now the only one who's not confirmed my brother. Ooh, that's a big deal. I, it's a huge deal. And so when I go to every time I go to a mass and every time I go to like, you know, a funeral, I, I everyone else gets up and I'm the one who has to sit while everyone goes you past me. Communion. I don't receive communion. And then and, and there's the scar- scarlet letter. Right. Um, I mean, for me, so much more of my childhood felt on the outside. It totally had to do with, like, sexuality stuff and being someone who just couldn't pass. Like, I couldn't figure out how to wear a skirt and not look like I was in drag. You said you had a a shaved head. When did that? that, Like, when were you first having short hair? You have such cute short hair now. Thank you. Uh, I... Yeah, I had, like, big, feathery, like, I mean, I couldn't Amazing. feather it. I couldn't figure out how to do it. Oh, I wore fucking suspenders in my senior class picture, which you should not do, A, period, ever. <laughs> yes, you should. Disagree. Not, and not Dis- when you have boots. Hard. Not when you have boots. No, that's true. Terrible. Suspenders are yeah, such a problem. they're so bad. Like- Although, what is the character on Mrs. Maisel? She's oh, doing, yeah. She's, she's to, I she mean, unbelievable. Wa- Kate Single-handedly yeah. doing a <laughs> Bring great job Bring of back. giving me... Yes. A visual reference point for how I could pull off suspenders. Yeah. Um, but, like, bad, there are a lot of bad choices. And I knew I felt out of my skin. And I didn't, like, it wasn't something you were really talking about. I mean, I always talk about when you when you think about representation and people who are young. I mean, I'm turning 50 in two months. Like, it's a, I'm fucking old. Um, but... My represent the first time I saw myself on screen, and it's a, it's a performance that actually kind of stands out, but nobody talks about it. It was Cher in the movie Silkwood, which means that you're associating being gay with um, uh, getting radiation poisoning and being scrubbed down. It was like this heavy drama, but Cher was the best friend who actually was the like loyal good person in that film, and she was gay. I have not. Yeah, I Number know. one, I have never seen this movie. I oh, literally so it's Meryl Streep. Don't even know what you're talking about, Mer- and I can't okay. believe there's. It's I can't believe I've missed this. Yes, and Cher played a, a, a an unbelievable like it's an unbelievable performance, and she w- and she was realistic, and she was she was like a uh, yeah. It's and that was my but that is my coming out thing, and my mother reacted in this in the screening like we were watching the movie together. And my mother said we're leaving, and I and I actually said no, we're not, and she left me in the theater. And didn't come back to pick me up for a while afterwards. So I was like, it was like opening the closet door and then like, you know, shut that shit down. Like, I'm not going there. And I didn't, I didn't, like, it was not something that people were verbalizing. There was, I didn't know anyone. Like, you just didn't, you didn't talk about it back then. But as soon as I got to college, it was pretty fast. I I made that shit happen pretty fast. When you got to college and did you find other folks that were out? I don't know. Like, I, I know you named, like, like Peter Page. Like, I, I know who these people are now. Sure. Peter, yes. You know, I... Yeah, were, Peter, Krista, Were there Abraham. people around you that were... Yes, there were a small group of us. So that freshman year where I got kicked out, um, I did I did a show first thing, like, performed in something, and there was a woman who, who told me one night she had a crush on me, and I remember being freaked out by it. But meanwhile, I totally had a crush on someone else, and we... 
you know, I did, I, I, I specialize in a lot of straight women. So mm-hmm. we were together for a couple of years. And by then I got into the acting program. And yeah, there was this like core group of us who were all kind of coming out and, and dealing with our sexuality together. And, and it was extraordinary having that group of people. And there was, there was a lunchtime that a guy named Ray Ford, who was on Don't Trust the Bee and um, Apartment. Like, like that was, like there was a whole group of us who were all out here doing like real work and and have found our voice. And there's no question that what was happening in this one, Rick Winter, that was his name. They were these old queens and his husband who was, you know, and they both worked in this department and he had this, lunchroom and you could go hang out in there. And I have pictures and you kind of go like, oh, right. Who was sitting there every day at lunch? Gay, 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 gay. Like we all were looking for this thing in each other. And within a year or two, we were all kind of out. But in a very complicated way. It was complicated, especially for for performers, which I wasn't. Well, first of all, that makes me about to burst into tears. The idea of uh, that lunchroom. That lunchroom. Yeah, oh, and it boy. was a it it was a it, yeah. and still knowing those people like that still know those people and That's still huge. it's really funny because we often look at like so Abraham is uh, one of the co eps and has been there since the beginning of Modern Family so we're always like we have all the age you know like obviously Peter queers folk but also the Fosters so yes. it's like I'm doing the young kids stuff Peter's taking care of the middle and Abraham is taking care of the adults yep. and then Krista's in there doing obviously the most incredible stuff on Grays um, and and there something like it was a very small. Person program but if you look at the four voice those four voices what? alone I and can't like, believe that that's that's yeah, amazing I mean there is something happened in that room that man who was like wow. it's an old version he is a club cafe queen let's put it that way sure. like, there's a different version there was a lot that wasn't politically correct there was a lot of like whatever else was in him but he just kept saying to all of us and fear he's the person who kept telling me I was too butch but that's fear from what he had gone through like but he was also saying to us live your life and speak up and speak out and I look at what that I I can't deny with those four people and how we came out and how we're all writing very clearly to try to change some of those perceptions yes and I will also say (laughs) Uh, a little less modern family just because I tend to not watch comedy. Yeah. I because it feels like work. Um, but uh all of those other shows very impactful on my life. Yeah, so thanks to that impactful. person. Yes, literally thank you, like Rick I love all those shows. Yeah. Um yeah. like I truly do. And yeah, I it's guess a, it's I would wonder. Astounding. All right, so this has how often do you have to I would imagine very often that you have to represent your show now. Like be the face of your show. Yes, I'm I'm very much the face of the show. Which is what a weird way to get around. It's like you're given this information in college, like you're way too butch. You're like, okay, cool. Then I'll like go behind the scenes, and then like. But I also have it very internalized. Like I have spent my whole life. I like I'm obviously I'm a I'm an achiever and I'm a big presence and I'm a strong personality and like I wanted to fight for my space at the table, my spot at the table. And every time I go to sit at that table, I feel like a fucking kid at the adults table. Like I don't feel like I belong. Like I I had a friend years ago, Vanessa Godson, when I first moved out here, who when I was going to an ex's wedding, like just at this moment, she was like, you need a good suit. Right. And it was about giving me something so that I could walk into a room and not feel like for all, you know, this will sound so obnoxious, but like I've I've won all the awards I've gotten like I have a, I've had a crazy career. Right. I should feel incredibly 
present at my table, at my place at the table. And yet I always walk in and feel and feel like I didn't wear the right clothes. I don't have the right hair. I still always feel that otherness, which I'm clearly combating. I never feel like I'm, I fit into a space, even as the world is changing. I don't think that sounds obnoxious. Maybe I'm not our listeners. Write in and tell us if we sound <laughs> No, I I mean I think what you're speaking to it's it's so specific sometimes when you work in the entertainment industry because like um we're so up on our own asses and like celebrity is its own yeah. news cycle and yeah. so like it can sound very uh, insular to talk about what it's like. But a lot of times on this podcast I try to think about it just like work. You know, it's just yeah. like these are just our jobs. Yeah. We're just really normal people. Yeah. Uh, who have a job that people are more invested in than most people's job. Like, most people don't, like, go to court to watch a lawyer or whatever. Um, And also, like, we're more rewarded for doing our job than most people. Um, But at the end of the day, it's a job. You know, it's, like, a thing that you do to make money. It's a thing that you do to impact the world. And I think that there are a lot of people who maybe they're just starting their careers and they're not sure how to go into an interview yeah, I, I mean, I think about this all the time. You know, I really do. I think about this when I tour. I have a chance to meet like so many different types of people face to face because I live in L.A. I'm from Chicago. You know, I lived in Boston. All of those things. It's like for many people that would be your your radius would be the, the folks around you. Um, but I just travel so much for work and so many people hang out after shows. They talk to me and I feel like I get the question about like, where do you get suits? I get that all the time. Oh, yeah. And for me, it's also, I'm in a very unusual place where um, sometimes I'll be like, well, you know, the best option is if you could have it made, made for, you, yeah. for your measurements. But number one, that's expensive. And number two, that also requires a tailor. Who will treat you with respect. Yep. Who, yes. who doesn't make you feel harmed. Yes. Um, and by the way, like even here in LA, I've been, I've been in situations. Oh, a hundred percent. Where yeah, yeah, I feel yeah. like very unsafe and, and yeah. uh, like judged and weird body feedback yep. uh, that didn't need to happen. Um, also, it's not like I have like, it's not like I, um, I'm dropping like a zillion dollars every day on suits. Like that's not what I wear most of the time. I wear right. other clothes. Right. And then, you know, then I'll say to folks like, well, I've had really positive experiences at, at Nordstrom. Like I try to give folks like some like helpful feedback that, no. but like maybe you don't have Paul that nearby. Smith. Yeah. Paul Smith. I love their suits. That's they don't always, they, they don't always fit me. Yeah. Right. But yep. then you, then I also suggest to people like if you're going to buy something off the rack, that yep. tailoring yep. can be really affordable. Like if yep. you go into and literally you anywhere, one good Target. Suit. You yeah. can have one good suit, right? And that's and then you work with that, right? For for where that is, but find the thing that you feel comfortable in. But then I I also know that I don't always feel comfortable. I mean, I definitely sure. I don't always feel comfortable. Like, and that's shit that I carry around with me. And and part of me thinks like, look, that's my superpower. That's actually what drives me, and what's it it's what makes me different. I couldn't. I was never going to do well in whatever I wanted to do by blending in. Right. Because I didn't have that option. I didn't have the option of being the person who who made who worked my way up because I hung out and got invited to the girls events and the whatever. Like that was never going to happen to me. Um, And so the only way I was ever going to achieve was to uber succeed. And I'm some in many ways grateful for that. Um, And in many ways, like, you know. I also regret the ways in which it has always felt like a difficult path. I wonder if there are people, though, also that, like, 
truly do feel comfortable. Oh, probably not. The most interesting people certainly don't. You know, I I think um, even when we talk about people that might like conform to a more traditional beauty standard or gender norms, it's like, okay, then you're under like 5 million microscopes and you have like the wrong underwear on air quotes. And that's a whole problem that's written about. Like that's a thing that that's true for people or just because you present a certain way does not mean you feel that way. And then, you know, the other thing is, like, I think the people that, like, truly do feel comfortable, this is my experience, (laughs) people that, like, truly do do feel comfortable, like, they walk in, the room is theirs. I, those people are insufferable. And also, like, (laughs) I think I'm much more likely to do harm because they feel, like, unchecked. I mean, like, when we talk about, like, in this moment, people that um, are getting, like, called out for terrible behavior, it's literally, like, people who are, like, well, I didn't know to... How right. could I have known this was bad behavior? And you're like, wait, you you, you understand live, there are other people you live in, in the world, yes, exactly, exactly, in a way that yeah. you could do this, like that yeah. you think that this would be okay. Yeah. Yeah. How? What is your life like? Like that you just would feel this? Like I am going to put all of this on you, right? Like that is so. I just could never. I have done terrible things in my life. I'm sure I've hurt people. Whatever. There, there are stories that I've heard like in the last eighteen months. That I'm like that you can't. I, believe. I cannot wrap my head yeah. around. Yeah, ever getting to that place. Oh, a hundred percent. So I'm like, maybe it's a good thing if I feel like I don't. <laughs> my shoulders are weird. Like maybe that is but protecting also, other people. I think so much about how that stuff actually just affected my own personality that it made me always on the defensive and mm. and the ways in which it put up the wall that sure. I presented to the world. And it's been interesting in the last couple of years, um, uh, there, you know, someone I've known forever and ever and ever recently pointed out, like, you've become like a chatty person. And I was always like that really, like in public settings, I wanted my girlfriend to go talk to the person at the airline counter, the person at the car. Like, I never wanted those interactions because they always pushed my buttons. I always walked up sure that they were going to be. And so I was angry as I walked up and then they respond with anger. And I have actually become the chatty person who always makes the joke, always has the conversation. And I'm actually incredibly aware that it's a political act. For me, because I earned the place at the table. But then the truth is, you walk, I am not a on camera celebrity. So I walk the world and people have no idea who I am or what I do. And so to me, the most powerful thing I can do is just be who I am, who you present yourself to be to me and, and come back with kindness and with and with interaction and to show you every day that I'm the person who will hold the door, have the joke, have the comment that makes you interact with me and have a good interaction. So, oh, I guess I like lesbians. <laughs> I oh, think I've changed at well, least two people's minds in I my mean, entire life. But, no, I've but it's better for me. I get that. I get that I really, the interaction is better. I really do get that. I really, I understand what you're saying. It's, it's tough. I feel like, hmm. I mean, I don't know. It's so hard to divorce. When was this? Like six months ago, I was at my show, my stand-up show, Put Your Hands Together. I was watching this person perform who's like, again, it's just like a straight white cisgender man. He was so funny. His jokes were so funny. They had nothing to do with anything. They were like, he was just goofing around. Right. And I was watching it. I was so, I I like rarely feel this way about that type of uh, material. Because usually it's like when when something I, I was just like never thought, but I, I was just watching him. I was like so jealous, just like oh my god, this person is having like 
so much fun. Right. Like I tried to to change anything. And I thought about how many times like early in my career that guys were like, man, if it stops being fun, like why are you even doing it? And I'm like, well, wait, I don't, I don't, I don't actually think I do this because it's fun anymore. Like, I think that's not, I mean, I love to be on stage, but I don't think that's why I've been doing it for a while. And I really had to like, and I'm still not sure. Like I really had to like go over in my mind again and again, like it, should I be, is it, how important is it that this is fun? Like, you know, like I, I was describing to someone, I used to be a long distance cyclist in, in, in New York. And so during the summers I would ride with a group. There was a group of like 10 of us and we would ride like 3000 miles over every summer. It was absurd. Like we would do two centuries every weekend. If you look at me now, you can tell I don't do that. And so, um, uh, there was like a night where we were having drinks with each other and everyone went around the room. Somebody had asked, what are you thinking about while you're on mile 70 of day two? And person after person was like, I am in the most Zen place. I am calm. I am happy. I am all of these beautiful. And they got around to me and I was like, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> Every mile for me is like, motherfucker, motherfucker, motherfucker. Like I, and I was so betrayed that we were not having the same experience. <laughs> I never rode again. That oh, was wow. it. I literally walked oh, away and I was like, I thought we were all in it together. I thought we were all miserable together. <laughs> we weren't miserable together. It wasn't about the misery. It was that they were actually in a completely different place. Than I wow. Was. Well, if you, and yeah, and I was out and they all became like, ultra marathoners like these people wow. all actually turned out as that that world of people who have masochism issues like expanded they became the forefront of that and i did not belong with them but i just like it was the betrayal of like oh i thought we were all miserable that's so funny if you ever want to go on like a very slow and angry hike let me know oh i'm a slow and angry hiker <laughs> now i'm all i'm all about that yeah <laughs> This was such a great conversation. Um, thank you so much for making time. Absolutely. I I, uh, I can imagine how busy you are. And I just want to ask you before sending you back into your day, if you could shout out a queero. So like somebody or something that made you feel like you can be who you are today. Um, I, for me, it was actually a, a journalist back in the 80s, Randy Schilt, who was writing um, uh you know, he wrote the original Harvey Milk book, the autobiography. He wrote um, uh, and the band played on. He was extraordinary. And uh, he was the first person to show me that there was that there was this larger community that was worth following in a journalistic way. Um, it's a very nerdy answer, but it's no, the I, truth. I, yes. I, I like I ate up his stuff. I thought I was going to be a journalist at one point, And he was incredible and did not. Did not survive the AIDS crisis. Well, thank you for shouting that person out. I have never read any of their stuff. So this is exciting for me to have a new person to care about. And Silkwood. Silkwood. These are the things I've learned. Yeah. Yeah. But just those two things. Nothing else. Yeah, nothing Nothing else. else. Chris, thank you so much. Absolutely. This was a delightful 